0: supposed to be disappearing, like dropping like flies as you know the topics that are left on the table. Um, if you're new this morning, if you're joining us for the first time, you have no idea what I'm talking about in, in what I just said. Um, we're currently in the, in the midst of a summer sermon series as a church entitled uh, Seven Deadly Follies, which is basically just to walk through the seven deadly sins as we see them evidenced in the book of Proverbs. Book of Proverbs designed to essentially compel us to choose wisdom over folly, virtue over vice. So that the book of Proverbs, simply put, is about obtaining wisdom. The first nine chapters made up of poetic attempts to compel us to choose wisdom over folly. Chapter nine, going back to the first week of this series, uh, presenting us with an imagery of two different houses, the house of Lady Wisdom on the one hand, the house of Lady Folly on the other two roads diverging in a yellow wood, so to speak, both calling out to us, both extending an invitation to come sit at their table and to eat. The one sweeping the connection between sin and death under the rug, dangling the lure in hopes that we won't see the hook for what it is, inviting us to sit at her table, to to raise a glass and to essentially toast our own death. The other offering us a seat at the banqueting table of the all-satisfying God, the one whose table is spread with everything we need to bring us true and lasting happiness and, and joy. So that on the one hand, this series is about exposing the hook, showing the, the vice for what it is, that we might see the ugliness of the vices for what they truly are. Pride, envy, anger, sloth, greed, gluttony, and lust, seven of Lady Folly's most deadly personas, reminding us, and we'll go there yet again as we do every week as a church, of our desperate need for the cross of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that can only be found in him. And with such forgiveness, the power to fight, the power to wage war against sin, to fight for true and lasting joy, as Jesus died not only to secure our forgiveness but also our spirit-empowered sin-killing obedience that we might do everything we possibly can to fight for happiness to the fullest extent, namely in the God who designed us to be happy in him. That's why the subtitle of this sermon series is The Fight for Happiness in the Killing of Sin. This series is not only about refusing to raise a glass and toast our own death, it's about embracing a seat at the better table as we've been talking about for weeks now. In other words, we're not simply talking about, with respect to this series, a fight for morality, but, but a fight for happiness, a fight for true, lasting joy. This morning, we move on to the sixth of Lady Folly's alluring personas, she who goes by the name of Gluttony. No one will be going to lunch after this morning's sermon and service. Uh, If you have a Bible, uh, you can open up to Proverbs chapter 23. We'll be in verses 19 through 21, among many other passages in Proverbs and verses outside of the book of Proverbs, as we've done throughout the course of this series. If you don't have a Bible, everything will be up on the screen behind me as we work our way through our time in God's word this morning. Uh, Let let me go ahead and pray for us, uh, and we'll jump in and get after it. I thank you for the grace that it is to come together as the bride of Christ, as you're redeemed. Uh, we, we could not do so were it not for your shed blood, Jesus, uh, bringing us into a forever family, this being one of many expressions gathered together on the Lord's day to worship you, to glorify you, to declare yet again our desperate need for you, our deep dependence upon you. Uh, God, we are going to dive into truths this morning that many of us already know, and yet if we're honest, uh, and myself, uh, I would include myself in this this morning, uh, our hearts are not always gripped by the truths that that we believe uh, at a cognitive level, and so uh, like the father in Mark's gospel account who cried out, I believe, help my unbelief, would you do that this morning in our hearts, Uh, Lord, that we might walk away more deeply satisfied in you, uh, that we might more readily see the better table for what it is and might more functionally grab a seat at that table, not just by the day, but by the moment, knowing that uh, you will be all the more glorified in us as we are all the more satisfied in you. So uh, Spirit of God, move in power as we spend time in your word this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so before we get to the book of Proverbs, it seems as though we can't, go a week without tracing human history all the way back to the garden. I think that's been a theme throughout the course of this sermon series. In this case, food finding its way all the way back to the story of creation before we ever even leave the first chapter of scripture. So that Genesis 1, tells us, and God said in the creation story, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Genesis 2, verses eight and nine. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord made, uh, God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Food is part of God's good creation, meant to sustain and delight those made in God's image, meant to remind us of our never-ceasing dependence upon God, can't go more than a few hours before you need another meal. We're desperate for the Lord. And yet, we also know that food is a part of the story of the fall. Genesis chapter two, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Right, the Lord provided a thousand tokens of His love, a thousand tokens of His provision for our first parents with one tree and one tree alone to remind them that only God is God. And as the story goes, the serpent brought into question the trustworthiness of God's word. Did God actually say? And Eve's, Eve's attention was captured, her vision blurred. So that Genesis 3, verse 6 tells us So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate, and then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. The fall of man, and with it sin's curse and death, through a shared meal of forbidden fruit, a meal rooted in self-determination, Judicial autonomy, the pursuit of a satisfaction not yet acquired, the first sinful distortion of God's good gift of food, and we've been doing it ever since in a variety of ways. It's not food nor drink that's the problem. Both are still meant to to sustain and delight we who are made in God's image. It's just as true east of Eden as it was in the very garden sanctuary of God, which is why Psalm 104 verses 14 and 15 would say, You, God, cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. The problem is not food. The problem is not drink. The problem is the human heart just as it was in the garden. There's so many ways to make food a God so that a good thing becomes an ultimate thing through excess and overindulgence, through dieting and calorie counting, through looking for comfort in food rather than in the Lord when things get hard. I mean, there are a number of sermons that that could be preached on the many ways we distort God's good gift of food. It could be its own sermon series. But gluttony, by definition, has to do with excess, and so that's where we're gonna focus our attention this morning though I encourage us all to, to consider the many ways that the kindness of the Lord might lead us to repentance as it pertains to the many ways that, that we exercise our appetites. Um, I don't know, this this would be something interesting to, to pull. I'd be curious to know for how many in our church this would be the first sermon that you've ever heard on gluttony. It doesn't seem to come up very often. Uh, I, I don't know where you, uh, some of you grew up, I know where, Many of you did. I grew up in the, the deepest recesses of the Bible Belt, the, the southernmost part of the American South. Uh, I, I've lost count of the number of sermons that I've heard uh, legalistically on, on uh, alcohol and how to approach alcohol, villainized, declared to be evil, only then to move into the fellowship hall for potluck or the local buffet, and the people of God gorge themselves. Like, demonize one thing and then deify another thing right as you leave the service. It never made sense to me, the logic of it all. I couldn't get my head around it. The, the sermons on gluttony, they're, they're few and far between. My, my guess maybe because it's one of the vices that we're a little bit more comfortable with than others. The language of the occasional guilty pleasure having made its way into our vocabulary as it pertains to the way we feed our appetites. And yet the dangers of gluttony are real And not just in the physical sense, but the spiritual sense as well. I'll give you a couple definitions. John Piper says, gluttony is having a craving for food that conquers you. Jonathan Bowers, in the book Killjoys, that we've been referencing throughout this series, he says, put concisely, gluttony is food worship, or some would say food and drink worship, It directs the appetite toward improper ends, looking to our taste buds for the satisfaction that God offers us in his fellowship through Christ. I like those definitions because they they get under the action itself to the appetite, the desire for satisfaction underneath the action. In other words, they, they get to the heart, which is important because external appearances are not always what they seem. There there are plenty of things that can bring about the putting on of weight that have nothing to do with eating or drinking in excess, and there are plenty of people with very high-level metabolisms, I, I envy them, bring in another vice from this series, who can commit the sin of gluttony and never physically show the evidence of the vice. I had a friend in college, $5 Tuesdays, that brother would order a large pepperoni pizza, 12 slices, and would put it down before the sun went down and would never show evidence, week in and week out. Proverbs 23, where I had you open up to in the scriptures, puts it this way. Hear my son and be wise and direct your heart in the way. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty and slumber will clothe them with rags. Notice that the the author begins with the heart. Hear my son and be wise and direct your heart in the way. That both gluttony and drunkenness paired together in these verses, their heart issues ultimately. Desire for satisfaction issues, broken cisterns, empty wells, can only leave us wanting in the end. For the drunkard and the glutton, verse 21, will come to poverty. Proverbs 13:25 says it this way: the righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the belly of the wicked suffers want. Or how about Ecclesiastes six, verse seven? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. You see the, the irony there in seeking satisfaction and fulfillment in ways that can only leave us emptier in the end? You see it in the book of Ecclesiastes from start to finish, this, this grasping of smoke and the pursuit of happiness apart from God in so many different ways. Right, many of us know this from experience. It's fascinating that, that moderation as a principle is actually weaved into the fabric of human existence. It's why overindulgence can leave us miserable in the end. Proverbs 25, 16 says, If you have found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit it. Or Proverbs 25, 27, it is not good to eat too much honey, nor is it glorious to seek one's own glory. Right, I would venture to guess, without exception in this room, myself included, that we all know the feeling of wishing that we had opted for the to-go box. Some of us may be the dehydration and insomnia that come with one too many adult beverages. Derek Kidner, in his commentary, he says, since Eden, man has wanted the last ounce out of life as though beyond God's quote-unquote enough lay ecstasy, not nausea. Or David Hubbard in his commentary, luxury in excess can turn to ugliness as honey to vomit. The sweetest of things to the ugliest of, of things, just by basis of the excess of it all. And we're not just talking about individual instances, but the dangerous long-term lasting effects on the body that, that excess brings. be it heart issues, liver damage, and the like, real physical danger. But more than that, and we've talked about this every week in this series, uh, there's a spiritual danger associated with the severity of the sin of overindulgence. Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 through 21, listen to the heaviness of this language. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, Then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is, here it is, a glutton and a drunkard. Here's where it gets heavy. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. What? So you shall purge the evil from your midst and all Israel shall hear and fear. In the Mosaic law, the one whose rebellious heart manifests itself in overindulgence, that person is considered evil, deserving of death in the eyes of a holy God. Unless we think that's just archaic Old Testament stuff, the apostle Paul says, Philippians 3, verses 17 through 19, "'Brothers, join in imitating me, "'and keep your eyes on those who walk "'according to the example you have in us. "'For many of whom I have often told you "'and now tell you even with tears,' walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, just like the man in Deuteronomy 21. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. The apostle Paul reminds us yet again of our desperate need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anybody ready to be reminded of the gospel this morning? It's great kindness on the Lord's part that The very next words that Paul offers the church in Philippi, Philippians three, verse 20. But, one of the greatest words in all the Bible, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Our bodies are not the problem. We don't need to buy into the lie of Gnosticism that says that the aim is to escape our bodies. No, God made our bodies good. He made food and drink as good things. We will be glorified someday. We'll be able to enjoy food and drink to the glory of God. We await a savior, Paul says, the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom our citizenship in heaven is secured, secured. It's good news for those of us who have looked elsewhere in excess for the satisfaction that God offers us in his fellowship through Christ. Isn't the gospel sweet? The good news of the person and work of Jesus He stooped down into the overindulgent slums of human history, Jesus did, that he might live in our place, a perfect life of self-control and joyful, full satisfaction in fellowship with the Father, accused of being a glutton and a drunkard, though he perfectly and sinlessly showed us how to fast and feast to the glory of God. Only then, as you trace the gospel accounts, to bear the sins of our insatiable appetites in his body on the tree, counted overindulgent so that we, the overindulgent, might be counted self-controlled and satisfied in the Lord. My goodness. If you're not a Christian, the, the call is simple this morning. It's to turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. It's to enter the house of wisdom, Proverbs 9, and to live And if you are a Christian, again, Christ not only died to secure our forgiveness, but our spirit-empowered, sin-killing obedience, that we might know deeper, true happiness, namely in the God who designed us to be happy in him, a seat at the better table, the table where true and lasting satisfaction is found. Proverbs 19.23, the fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. Psalm 4, 7, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Psalm 107, verse nine, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. My, my guess is that most of us in this room don't need to be convinced of those truths. That true satisfaction is found in the Lord. Probably don't need to sit down and doctrinally hash that out. But my guess is that there are many of us, I came in this morning feeling this way. There's a disconnect between your confessional theology and your functional theology. What you know you believe to be true in your mind and what your heart wants to grab hold of in the moment, in the hour, in the day. On the one hand, the kindness of the Lord leads us to, to explore the why. Beneath our excessive pursuits of of true and and lasting happiness and things other than Jesus Christ. Similar to to last week with anger. There's something underneath the action, even the emotion, something that gets to the heart of worship. And the Lord invites us to explore that, that we might more vigilantly fight the good fight of faith. On the other hand, for every look at ourselves, we need to take 10 looks at Jesus Christ because the Lord invites us to taste and see that he is good. We trust that that he truly can satisfy us in a way that nothing else can. The old Scottish pastor Samuel Rutherford once said, there's enough in our Lord's kitchen to satisfy all his children and enough wine in his cellar to quench all their thirst. Hunger on, he says, for there is food and hunger for Christ. Never go from him without bothering him with a dish full of hungry desires until he feeds you. The the, the Christian life, it's about bringing hungry souls to the table of the king, believing that the king himself can truly satisfy us. it's, It's out of that place and only out of that place of satisfaction in Christ that we can rightly enjoy God's good gifts of food and drink for his glory as was intended for our first parents in the garden who had everything they needed for true and lasting joy, as will be true someday for we who are in Christ as we take our seat at the marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19. And in between those two bookends of redemptive history, as we longingly wait for that day, we have everything we need in Christ to glorify God in the exercising of our appetites, whether through fasting a groaning and hunger for the arrival of God's kingdom, or through feasting and recognizing that God's grace is a grace that must be celebrated. So whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, 1 Corinthians ten thirty one, do all to the glory of God. That the satisfaction that's found in Jesus Christ, it frees us not to demonize nor deify God's good gifts, frees us to say when, for his glory, our joy, and the good of others. Rebecca DeYoung, professor of philosophy at Calvin University, uh, in her book, Glittering Vices, which is another commentary on the seven deadly sins, she says, and, and this is something of the essence of the book of Luke, where you see expressions of both fasting and feasting to the glory of God. She says, our eating creates social bonds, communicates love for each other, connects us to sources of provision and security and calls for celebration. We mark life's most important moments with foods, from a nursing mother's bond with her child to a wedding or birthday cake, from family holiday traditions and shared cups of coffee with friends to church potlucks and warm suppers brought after a funeral. Eating nourishes us, not just physically, but also emotionally and spiritually. For that reason, we can appreciate the value of virtue and the destructive power of vice in this area of our moral lives. Against gluttony's temptations to to self-centeredness and self-indulgence, virtue helps us affirm both the goodness of pleasure and the need to temper and train our desire for it. That point in turn helps us to understand why both fasting and feasting are characteristic parts of the Christian life. Again, we'll see it on beautiful display, we already have in various forms throughout the book of Luke as we walk through it up to this point. When we re-engage it in the fall and work our way to its end, we're just gonna continue to see it. Luke loves to play, uh, put on display what de Young is, is trying to communicate the essence of here. Uh, I'll leave you this morning with a quote from one of my favorite books outside of scripture. I bet you can guess the author. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Paralandra, it's the second in his space trilogy, which sounds super nerdy to say out loud. Um, and if I can kind of just frame the story, uh, Elwin Ransom is, is the main character, and he's essentially traveled to Venus, which uh, the other name of it is Paralandra. And Venus is in this pre-fallen, Edenic-like garden sanctuary sort of, sort of state, And it has its own Adam and Eve character. And the question is, are are they gonna succumb to temptation and fall and and ransoms there to to tell them the story of what happened in our world so that perhaps that might not happen for them? And and as he's exploring this this new terrain, this new world in its pre-fall state, Lewis writes, now he had come to a part of the wood where great globes of yellow fruit hung from the trees. "'Clustered as toy balloons are clustered "'on the back of the balloon man "'and about the same size. "'He picked one of them and turned it over and over. "'The rind was smooth and firm "'and seemed impossible to tear open. "'And then by accident, one of his fingers punctured it "'and went through into coldness. "'After a moment's hesitation, "'he put the little aperture to his lips. "'He had meant to extract the smallest experimental sip, "'but the first taste put his caution all to flight.' It was, of course, a taste, just as his thirst and hunger had been thirst and hunger. But then it was so different from every other taste that it seemed mere pedantry to call it a taste at all. It was like the discovery of a totally new genus of pleasures, something unheard of among men, out of all reckoning, beyond all covenant. For one draft of this on earth, wars would be fought and nations betrayed. It could not be classified. He could never tell us when he came back to the world of men whether it was sharp or sweet, savory or voluptuous, creamy or piercing. Not like that was all he could ever say to such inquiries. We all have our closest experiences to ransoms. I don't know what yours are. Mine be the garlic parm wings at Why Not, the All-American Burger at Palmer's, the seafood platter at Family Coastal where we go on family vacations, And uh, I I would love to just sit around and have that conversation with you where we would say, not like that. You just have to try it for yourself. But listen to how the story continues. Lewis says, and he let the empty gourd fall from his hand and was about to pluck a second one. And it came into his head. He was now neither hungry nor thirsty, and yet, to repeat a pleasure so intense and almost so spiritual seemed an obvious thing to do. His reason, or what we commonly take to be reason in our own world, was all in favor of tasting this miracle again. The childlike innocence of fruit, the labors he had undergone, the uncertainty of the future, all seemed to commend the action. Let me stop there because the, those things described in that list often drive us toward the comfort of food and drink, do they not? The labors we've undergone, life's been hard as of late. In certainty of the future, I don't know where things are going. Yet, Lewis says, something seemed opposed to this quote unquote reason. It is difficult to suppose that this opposition came from desire, for what desire would turn from so much deliciousness? But for whatever cause, it appeared to him better not to taste again. Perhaps the experience had been so complete that repetition would be a vulgarity, like asking to hear the same symphony twice in a day. I've yet to come across something more inspiring outside of scripture as it pertains to the beauty of the principle of moderation. That it's true satisfaction in Christ that frees us to quote unquote enjoy the symphony once to know the joy of operating the way God has designed and weaved into the fabric of the universe, the principle of moderation, rather than the vulgarity, to use Lewis's language, of excess. No, we can't go back to the the pre-fall of man, Eden-like world of Paralandra, where there is no curse and therefore no distorted loves, but Jesus offers us redemption the kind of redemption that frees us little by little from overindulgence and welcomes us more and more to the table of God-glorifying moderation. It's the better table, and it's ours for the taking in Jesus Christ.